Design Matters with Debbie Millman is on summer break and will return with new interviews this fall. In the meantime, we're replaying some episodes. This one with Barry Blitt was recorded in December 2017. This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman from designobserver.com. For 13 years now, Debbie Millman has been talking with designers and other creative types about what they do, how they got to be who they are, and what they're thinking about. On this podcast, Debbie Millman talks with The New Yorker Magazine's celebrated cover artist, Barry Blitt, about where his ideas come from. Well, you, you want to have your pen on the page. I mean, there's times when I'll walk around and try and think of things, but three quarters of the battle is, is scribbling. Here's Debbie Millman. For cartoonists and illustrators, there's no bigger stage than the cover of The New Yorker. Since 1992, Barry Blitt has contributed more than 100 covers and countless illustrations to the magazine. He is a master of political satire, and he is fully engaged in the Trump era with devastating caricatures of the people in power. His most controversial cover, however, came during the 2008 campaign with his illustration of President Obama dressed in Muslim garb, fist-bumping, and armed and afroed Michelle Obama. Barry Blitz's work has also appeared in many other magazines, as well as in the New York Times. The best place to see it is in his magnificent new book, titled simply Blint. I'm so honored to have him here on Design Matters today to talk about his career and his extraordinary body of work. Barry Blitt, Welcome to Design Matters. Thank you, Debbie. I'm delighted to be here. Barry, I'd like to read the first sentence of your new book. You write, If you really want to hear about it, the first thing you'll probably want to know is where I was born and what my lousy childhood was like and how my parents were occupied and all before they had me and all that David Copperfield kind of crap. But I don't feel like going into it if you want to know the truth. That line is vaguely familiar to me. Right. It's the first line of Catcher in the Rye. Um, what made you decide to, to use that line? Uh, what made me decide to use it? I was scrambling. Really? Yeah. I don't do a lot of writing about myself. I mean, there is an, an anonymity to just contributing drawings to publications, you know. Uh, I mean, The New Yorker is it's very visible, but it's not, you know, it's, it's about them. It's not about me. Putting the book together is not something I would have suggested. It was, uh, you know, an editor at Riverhead, Jeff Klosky, called me with the idea, and it's every illustrator's or cartoonist's, you know, ideal to, to have a collection of their stuff in one tome. So, you know, I was delighted to do it, but it's, you know, it does come with a certain amount of, you know, I'm, I'm sitting here being interviewed here with uncomfortable headphones, so I'm out of my comfort zone is what I'm saying. Oh, well, we'll try to get you to feel a little bit more comfortable. You don't have earbuds I could wear? Um, no, forget it. Okay. <laughs> keep going. I'll get over <laughs> okay, it. Okay, good. Barry, you were born in Quebec, Canada, and have said that you were born a smart aleck, a Weisenheimer, a jokester, a punster, and a fool. So you just popped out that way? Well, you know, my dad was like that. My younger brother is a, is a, is a funny guy. So, you know, there, was, there wasn't much choice, really. As a toddler, you drew cartoon characters on shirt cardboard. And I understand that it was then that your parents saw potential and encouraged you to go into dry cleaning. 
Right. That was a, that was a joke. Yeah. See, I'm yeah. trying to seem like I'm the one that's funny when in Please, fact it's really better just you, you than I'm me. quoting. Yeah. <laughs> it's no picnic trying to be funny all the time. I think that was that was the thrust of what I was trying to get across. It's, you know, you get into trouble, like the fist bump, like countless other times. Trying to be funny, is a, it's a blessing and a curse. So what kind of drawings were you making on that cardboard paper? I mean, I was drawing Popeye a lot as a very young kid, and then I was sort of drawing my own cartoon characters. This is, We're talking about very young. Very right? young, yes. When did you decide that you might be, or when did you realize that you might be artistic? I think I was just told by adults and, and peers and friends, you know, that that kid could draw, basically. When you were a teenager, your focus was on drawing hockey players, baseball players, Elton John, all of which I can understand. But you also had a focus on drawing Dorothy Hamill. Right. Why Dorothy Hamill? Do, I don't think we have to talk about this, really. Why? I, I, I liked Dorothy Hamill at, at a certain age where I was vulnerable. Oh, wait, so you had a crush on her. I had a her. crush on Dorothy Hamill. Oh, I was thinking that it might have had something to do with her hair. Well, she had good hair. But you had a crush on her. I did. And did you ever send her any of your drawings? I or? hope I didn't. <laughs> I can't totally remember. Yeah. Did you send your drawings out a lot to people? I did, yeah. I grew up in Montreal, so I was a hockey fan, as you, you pretty well had to be. And I had a sort of a scam going where I would draw hockey players, usually the visiting teams, and I would go down to the hotel where they stayed, and I would wait for them to come down into the lobby, and I would present them with their drawings. And I ended up, you know, befriending a lot of hockey players and getting free tickets to hockey games. And I so had that re- was the scam part. That was the scam. Yeah, it was an, maybe it wasn't a scam. It was more of an angle. But I, I, I had my work published in the Pittsburgh Penguins playoff yearbook and the Philadelphia Flyers yearbook. So, can you see if you were to look back on those drawings now, the beginning of your signature style? No, no, they were reverential. You know, I mean, I was a smart aleck, as I mentioned, but I sort of kept that out of my work. I thought. One's art shouldn't be sullied by your wise cracks and your, your attitude. From all the research that I've done about your early drawing and going to college and so forth, it seems that you really had two separate camps of work. You had this, what you called, crazy pictures that you kept out of your portfolio. They were for your friend's eyes only. Um, and then you had the more serious, what you consider to be artistic work. Right. What kind of work was that? Once I, at a certain age, learned to capture a likeness, you know, it was hero worship, basically. And then when that started to feel uncomfortable, it was sort of photorealism with, with very soft pencils, charcoal and stuff like that. And at the same time, I was doing pen and ink stuff. So I had a, a sort of a dual portfolio that I brought around to magazines in Toronto after I finished school. Now, you never took any art classes before you went to college, yet you got into the Concordia University in Montreal and then the Ontario College of Art on the strength of what you referred to as your humorless portfolio. Right. Um, And so those were just drawings that you made on your own that weren't hockey players or Dorothy Hamill. What kinds of things were you doing at that point? There was probably some Dorothy Hamill. There was, I mean, there was rock star drawings. And, and so then when you got into school, you decided, okay, this is it. I'm, I'm going to be an artist. I want to do this for a living. I mean, I felt I was going to do this for a living. And one, I thought maybe I'd be drawing portraits in hotels. In ho- or I'm, I'm not sure what I thought I would be doing. You wrote uh, that you were intimidated when you first got to college. Just being around so many terrific artists, you know, I wasn't used to that. Being around with, you know, surrounded by people who were damn good at this, for one thing. And uh, maybe realizing that what I was doing was 
was crap, you know, which, you know, I feel every day. But that's when I was first introduced to it. When I was, you know, 14 and drawing hockey players, I thought I was just doing fantastic work. Given that the bulk of your work for school assignments was, as you put it, authentically realistic with slavish adherence to likeness and mood, what kind of response were you getting from your professors? Did you ever show them your more slapdash pen and ink drawings? I did, some. I remember one of the first pen and ink drawings I did, the slapdash style, was a drawing of Rodney Dangerfield that I haven't matched since. It was just a, you know, it was a, the colors were bright. I, you know, I wish I, I still drew like that. And you still have that drawing? I still have that drawing. It should be in the book. It's not. Yeah, it should be in the book. Yeah, so I got a good response to that particular drawing. But after that, I went back to the charcoal stuff. And at that point, you you just said that you were thinking you might make illustrations in a hotel or something like that. But what was, did you have aspirations? Were you thinking, I'd like to be a cartoonist in the vein of? I think I was, I was fighting against the cartoonist uh, label, you know, and, and I had a roommate in art school who was a fine artist, a, an aspiring fine artist. And he would look at my drawings and say, oh, it's cartoons, you know, what you're doing. It's, it would, he would belittle it by that. And I think I took that as a, as a pejorative. And I was trying to do something higher, but I'm not sure what, what it is I was trying to do. How did you go about getting work when you first graduated? So, yeah, I brought around a portfolio of my pieces I was proud of. But, you know, I wanted to stack the portfolio. And I also had some funny stuff. And every art director I went to, except for a few notable ones, um, preferred the funny stuff. Did that worry you at the time? I was happy to get work. You know, I was happy that I expected to bring work in and, you know, not have it be well received. So I was excited that they liked something. You wrote how you felt that indulging in the humorous for money in real magazines and newspapers felt like cheating. Is it because you enjoyed it so much? I don't know about the money part. I mean, I would have happily sold the realistic stuff for money. But, yeah, I thought that art was something higher than, than you know, wisecracks. Little did I know. <laughs> you can make a good living at this stuff. Yeah, and there's tremendous art in wisecracks. And, uh, you know, I, I've come to appreciate that. But your work is really more than just wisecracks. It's not Three Stooges kind of ha-ha-ha work. It, it, there's a real biting satire to it. Not that there's not some biting satire as well to the Three Stooges, but how did you start to bring politics and satire into your work? I started getting work with the funny stuff, the so-called funny stuff, and then I started sending my portfolio to, to the United States and getting work there. And before too long, I had a regular gig with Entertainment Weekly, and I was doing pop culture stuff. So it still had echoes of Dorothy Hamill and Electric Light Orchestra, etc. And I think the political angle emerged with the Monica Lewinsky scandal when suddenly it seemed like politics became pop culture. And I was being asked by Entertainment Weekly, of all places, you know, to, to make Bill Clinton jokes. And uh, politics was everywhere. And it sort of happened that way. From what I've uncovered in my research, when you first started out doing this type of work, you, by your own admission, say that your knowledge of politics was superficial. You don't still feel that way, do you? Uh, I think so. I mean, I don't have strong feelings or understanding of economic policy or anything like that. 
I mean, I find I go to a dinner party and if everyone is left-wing there, which I consider myself strongly left-wing, but I argue with whoever I'm talking to. I'm sort of a contrarian. It's easy to make jokes about stuff, but to understand it deeply, I, I don't think I do. Because there really is a, a deep pathos embedded in your work, at least that I perceive, that leads me to believe that the person behind those drawings is is sort of deeply feeling the humanity in any, any situation. No? <laughs> Just making it up. Sure, yeah. No, I, I, I hope I am. I know. You don't like compliments. I have to, I, keep, well, I have to be I, careful. I just would rather not think about these things too much. I, I think if, if I were to worry or to, uh, to look inward too far, it would, it would kill every artistic impulse I had. It would make me too self-conscious. Not that I'm not enough already, but... When you first started working at The New Yorker in the 1990s with Chris Curry... You began drawing illustrations for reviews and for articles and either pen and ink or watercolors. So at that point, do you feel that you had sort of found your style, your yeah, look? Yeah, quite yeah. A, a bit before that, by the late, by the 80s, by the late 80s. How did yeah. you get your first big break with The New Yorker? The first big break with The New Yorker? I mean, I, mean, I remember, I think they still used to see artists then. I don't know if they do anymore, but I brought my portfolio in. I called Chris Curry and... And uh, she came out into the lobby and looked through my portfolio and then gave me a movie review to, to illustrate. I did several of those. And then she introduced me to Francoise Mouly, who had just started at the magazine. Now, I read when, you, she, when she first reviewed your portfolio, you showed her a few panels on a page about a beard museum. Right. So I, does that really exist, or was it an idea to develop an, one? That was an idea just I had kept showing to Francoise. Part of my relationship with Francoise is to try and make her laugh. If I would bring her a sketch that she didn't like, I would make sure to bring it back, you know. And I think she said, that's ridiculous, you know. We're, we're not going to run that. So kept bringing it back to her. Well, in 1993, Francoise invited you to try, in quotes, a cover. What does it mean to try a cover? At the end of a phone call about something else, she just said, you know, why don't you, why you should be pitching covers, you know, why, why don't you? And I was doing a lot of spot illustrations by then, so the, the amount of real estate a cover has is, is intimidating. I mean, there's a shroud of mystery around how the New Yorker covers come into being. Uh-huh. Um, I learned a lot reading your book about it, and it's really fascinating, especially the speed in which it happens. But I do know that there's this process of pitching ideas for the covers. So how do you go about doing that? You just decide that this is a topic that you believe is worthy of a cover and then execute and send in a sketch? Is that really how simple it is? I guess so. I mean, back then, this was before I think, before I had a scanner probably. And so I would walk, or it was before I was doing political stuff, I would walk around the city and, and have a sketchbook open and see things that amuse me. And in this particular time, I'm sure I sent in quite a few sketches. But one, I, I was watching people newly, you know, congregating outside of buildings smoking cigarettes. That was a new law that you couldn't smoke in an office. And so I had them standing on window ledges. That was the, the, the sketch. You showed some of those sketches to Edward Sorrell, the legendary illustrator. Right. Well, actually, how it happened was I sent the sketch in, the rough sketch, and Francois said, Tina likes it. Go ahead. Which, you know, sent me in all kinds of bad directions. But I did several versions of it, and uh, none of which were 
usable at all. They were bad drawings. Why? What makes something? They, were, they tightened up, and I was approaching it wrong. I mean, Francoise looked at them and rolled her eyes and said to me, why don't you go talk to Ed Sorrell? He's done lots of covers, and he'd be a great person to talk you down and give you some advice, which terrified me. And I said, no, I'm not going to talk to Ed. But he called me a minute later and invited me over, and it was, it was an amazing thing. I went to his house for lunch, and he... He, he said, show me what you've got. I showed him some drawings. He said, no, 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 these are terrible. It's the, where'd you get these buildings from? And I said, well, I made them up, you know, to fit the image. And he said, don't make, you know, some people can make up buildings. You can't, I can't. And he showed me how he would do it. He just did a very rough sketch of the, the composition of the image. When you ended up with the final, he was still somewhat right. underwhelmed. <laughs> <laughs> he was. You can't win. Um, but what, what was his critique? Because oh, it he was didn't quite, say. He just, he, oh, he just said... Uh, yeah. He just said, not your best work. <laughs> That's just which so was, cruel. Which is almost encouraging from Ed. <laughs> well, despite Ed's misgivings, on January 10th, 1994, your first cover was published. It was titled Resolute Smokers right. and featured smokers all over buildings, on the ledges, in the windows, desperately trying to get their fix. Yeah, I mean... Ed's comment wasn't the worst of it because about a month later, uh, the New Yorker got a letter from Arnold Roth, another legendary cartoonist, showing that he had done the exact same idea in Time magazine maybe a year before. And then the New Yorker themselves found that they had run a cartoon, a black and white cartoon inside the magazine before Arnold's of uh, people standing on window ledges smoking. So, Did you feel doomed? I felt doomed. That's exactly how I felt. How do you recover from something like that? You recover, you know. I mean, I've produced some duds, more than my share. And you just, you know, you go on to the next one. I want to talk a little bit about how you work. Okay. Illustrator Steve Brodner has said that the most important tool a satiric artist can have is a space to play. But every issue of The New Yorker closes the print issue on Fridays. And you often get a call on a Wednesday or a Thursday, asking for ideas. You're then expected to send in sketches in a matter of hours. So how do you go about doing that? A good example would be the Brexit situation. That was a Thursday night. Usually the magazine goes to, to the printer on Thursday. But because the results were so unexpected and, and profound, there was an email that went out to artists on Friday morning saying, we're going to hold the cover we have at the plant. If anyone has an idea, let us know right now. I remember just walking into my studio and scribbling a couple of things. I, and I, I wish there was a, a dramatic, you know, sequence I could I, I could describe for you. But it was just a matter of, of panicking and drawing and, you know, trying to make myself laugh in a second. And, and it's a fairly remarkable cover. It's a British men in sort of top <laughs> hat and jackets walking off a cliff. Yeah, it's so, from Monty Python. It's right. A silly walk. How do you come up with the ideas? I think there's much less than I mean than meets the ear here. There's there's nothing. There's nothing. really nothing. I mean it's it's I can tell you that there was the cover we had of the guy being dragged off a plane. And that's an objective is to try and mash a couple of storylines into a single image and that was ju- ju- Jeff Sessions was pulling James Comey off and Thank Trump you. in the background was a right. flight attendant. Right. And that was shortly on the heels of the guy getting pulled off the United Airlines flight. Right. And it, it worked as a, as a commentary on the situation. 
The truth is that I came up with that idea a few weeks before when Steve Bannon was rumored to be uh, on the outs and he was going to be fired. And he wasn't at the time. I mean, he was much later. But I originally sketched it out as Steve Bannon being pulled off, which wouldn't have worked at all. I mean, you're, you want to be sympathetic with the guy who's being pulled off. So it had some resonance as, as it, you know, with, with James Comey being pulled off. But yeah, the idea, as I thought of it, was a lousy idea with Steve Bannon, but it just happened to work. I mean, I, I think there's a lot of luck involved. Well, I think luck is there when you show up time after time after time after right. time. And maybe one day, if you're lucky, luck is there waiting for you. But now, but let's talk for a second. I, I disagree that the Steve Bannon version of that cover wouldn't work. It would be appropriate, but it, it might be not be funny. as funny. It would be funny, but it wouldn't... It, it it's just intellectually, if I can use that word here, it, w- it wouldn't work on on any other level than as a joke. I mean, it it was not so cheap a laugh. The way it worked out, I think. Yeah, no, it's not a, a cheap laugh. It's a sad laugh. It's a okay. tragic laugh. There's nothing like a sad laugh. Yeah, well, that's. I mean, you and Chris Ware, you have that sort of sense. Alison Alison Bechdel as well. There's you can convey humor. Sadness, heartbreak, pathos with one stroke of your pen. I think you're mixing me up with Harry Bliss, actually. No, I'm not. Okay. You've said that you still have to force yourself with every drawing and every sketch not to hold back, not to be too timid on the page. And Francoise has written about how she never wants you to edit out the gross, the vulgar, or the unpublishable. And she goes on to state in the book, a humorist like Barry Blitt is often referred to as having an edge. And to find that edge, he has to go beyond it, sometimes far beyond. So my question is, how do you struggle with forcing yourself not to hold back in order to go beyond that edge? It seems like there's a real push-pull of not wanting to be too timid, but also getting to that place where you've gone too far and it does become unpublishable. Right. Well... Actually, this this isn't challenging and probably isn't hard to explain, this aspect of it. I mean, I think I always have bad thoughts and, and I go too far in my sketchbook. You know, it's just stuff I wouldn't send to her. So she just encourages me to send it to her, you know. And half of the time, like the Beard Museum, I know it's something that she's not going to publish and that's fine. I, you know, it's fun to make Francoise laugh. So at that point, I'm just sending her, you know, I'll send her 10 sketches and I know three of them are absolutely pointless. But it seems to me that that is, that signifies there's a real trust there. Yeah, sure. I mean, I've, I, I only once got a, <laughs> once got sort of a bad reaction from her from something I sent. Can you share what it was? Yeah, it was, uh, I'm not sure if I sent it or mentioned it to her, but when she was telling me to not hold back, I had an idea of like a, this is a terrible idea. But it's uh, it's one of those train cars going to the, to Auschwitz, basically, and it's everyone you know packed into the car, and there's one guy talking on his cell phone, and everyone's irritated because he's talking on his cell phone. <laughs> so that was she said, "Thank you very much for showing me that," in a tone of voice I hadn't heard before. But otherwise, you know, you probably you need you need to go too far to get to where you're going, or some. In a conversation with Steve Heller, you implied that much of your best work was the results of accidents that somehow succeeded. 
And you also, again, in that specific essay, there was a a reference to luck. And he didn't believe that for a minute, but I was intrigued. I, I was intrigued because I wanted to understand how do you get to that accident to begin with? And that gets us back to that other question right. about how do you come up with ideas? And I know that Steve Brodner in, in your book talks about how he feels that it's important to write drunk but edit sober. So so the, that, that plethora of ideas, that flurry of connections that you're making, how does even a happy accident happen? How does that mash up? Well, you, we want to have your pen on the page. I mean, there's times when I'll walk around and try and think of things, but I think a three-quarters of the battle is, is scribbling and making something visible, you know, not keeping it in your head. And, that, and you know, luck is just another word for it, I guess. And it's, it's definitely part of the process. You mentioned before the notion of your first few sketches for your first ever cover for The New Yorker being tight. Right. Not sketches. This was final artwork. Oh, so final artwork yeah. being tight. I've read that you will often do more than one finished cover so that each version appears casual and and loose. How do you achieve that casual looseness Uh, so that it doesn't appear tortured? I think it does appear tortured plenty of times, but it's it's trying to distract myself. It's trying not to think about it too much, which is hard, you know, when your brain's going blah, 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 blah in your head. But it's just a matter of doing it, you know. Uh, if there's a single part of an illustration that you don't like, I read that you'll redo the entire thing. And yet your work always looks entirely spontaneous. And I guess that's the result of that looseness. What gives you the sense? Is it just a personal assessment that something looks too tight or something yeah. looks too forced or tortured? Absolutely, yeah. On the other hand, when you say something, an entire image will look will look loose. There are times when I'll send several versions to Francoise and she will take, maybe she'll take one figure out of the out of one and digitally put them together. Oh, really? Yeah. And in, in the New Yorker cover of Martin Luther King hailing a cab, Francoise Mouly suggested that you have a face in the taxi driver. Um, you you the drew the window. sort of inside of the taxi cab and then the driver's looking out and yet you can see the driver in the rear view mirror, as you just said. How many ideas do you get from Francoise? Because I know she was the one that said, can you put the driver in the car? So how much of that is collaborative? How much of the work it's, you do together? It's collaborative. I mean, often they're, they're happening at the very last minute. So she might get the final art and say, I've, you know, it might be a good idea if I do this. Are you okay with that? And she'll, she'll digitally move something. But How often does she say no to you? How do you mean no? As in bad idea, Barry. That was spelled out. Um, <laughs> well, I'm sending, if I'm sending, ultimately, uh, the magazine publishes 50 issues a year or so, and I'm lucky if I get four or six covers a year. Or Seems like you're getting a lot more now. My math could be wrong. But I mean, I'm not, I've never done 10 in a year or eight, I don't think. I'm not sure how many I do. I, but I bet uh, you you'll come up this year with about that many. There's a lot of no's. I mean, I'm, I'll often send you know, 10 sketches and none of them will go. Well, my batting average is, it's, it's like a pitcher's. It's not a great, it's not a great batting average. But if you think about somebody like Babe Ruth, you know, great, one of the greatest baseball players of all time, you know, what was it, 400? 
Right. So yeah, I'm not in Babe Ruth territory. Okay. Well, let's. We're not going to argue. We're talking back and numbers. Forth about I mean, if you're if you're asking numbers, <laughs> you know, I'm sure that I if I let's say I have six covers a year or seven, I'm sure over the year I've sent seventy sketches at least, probably, probably more than that. In an essay in your book, Francoise stated that when you first met, you had her watch Fox News rather than MSNBC. I had her watch. Yes. Uh, I, I wasn't aware of that. I mean, I told her that I, I was, I made sure to, to listen to Rush Limbaugh when I could stand it, and to watch Fox when I could stand it. And now I can't even watch MSNBC. I can't. I can't. I mean, I don't watch any televised news. I find it all show busy and crap. But, but that's just me. But yeah, I think it's important to, you know, to see what, what the country is consuming, see what people are looking at. I have some friends who are extremely right wing. It's distressing. How do you manage? We don't talk politics at all. Isn't that hard to do? Which, not talk politics? Not to talk politics with people that you know have different politics than you do? Yeah. It's a lot easier not to talk politics with people you know have the same politics with you. Right. It's unsatisfying. If I... If I have an argument with them and I even if I feel like I've won the argument, I feel bad afterwards, you know, so. Yeah. You have some absolutely wonderful photographs in your book showcasing the tools of your trade. And they include synchromatic, transparent watercolor, India inks, quill pens. But on another spread, you have Zantac and aspirin and Pepto-Bismol. Do you find the work very stressful? I mean, I'd probably be stressed out whether I was working or not. So it's not really about the times, it's just about the way you are? Oh, I see. Yeah, I'm sure it's the way I am, probably. And I just went and did a live drawing thing with the New York Times there, and I thought it would be hilarious to have a pill bottle on the uh, on the drawing surface there, but apparently the last person they had did that too, so... When it first came out that Tiger Woods had been unfaithful to his wife, you created a rather cheeky image of Tiger Woods trying to get a golf ball in about 130 holes. And the illustration was accepted and then rejected by The New Yorker, then subsequently accepted and rejected by Vanity Fair, and then rejected by The Huffington Post. You've said that this is what is known in illustration as a triple bogey. How do you know what is appropriate for what type of magazine? How, why would you send something to The New Yorker versus Vanity Fair versus The Huffington Post? I mean, I've, that's, I think that's probably the only time I ever sent anything to The Huffington Post. And uh, my objective is to send things to The New Yorker first and foremost. I mean, I'm, I send everything there first. And then when it was killed, uh, you know, I thought that Vanity Fair might might go for it, possibly. So even though it might be rejected by Francoise or some other art director at The New Yorker, if you feel really strongly about something, you would still consider sending... that They're not the final word. You might consider taking it it elsewhere. If I thought it was still viable. And so no one ever published that illustration. First time that anybody could see it is in your book. Right. There's a reason to buy the book. I think I've had stuff published in other magazines that The New Yorker didn't go for. I did a drawing of... uh, It's a casket, a flag draped casket being supported by pallbearers. I wrote support our troops below it. The New Yorker didn't go for it. But I think the Atlantic Monthly did. It was around the time of the Iraq War. 
Let's talk about some of your most famous covers. Throughout the eight years of the second Bush administration, you were persistently brutal on George W., most deservedly so, in the September 8, 2008 cover titled Deluged, which featured Bush, Dick Cheney, Karl Rove, and Condoleezza Rice sitting in a flooded Oval Office. How do you see this type of idea before you draw it? Again, this goes back to the creation of ideas, but that one was so vivid and struck such a deep, deep chord in our society. I'm wondering if you could just give us any kind of backstory on that particular illustration. I wish I could make the the process dramatic or even, you know, give you a sequential tour of what the hell is happening but it's just it's a it's a pencil moving in on a page you know and it's I don't know what the hell's going on to be honest with you it's a terrible answer but I you know I think I'd rather not know that's that's fair that's actually really wonderful let's talk specifically then about Condoleezza Rice's hair okay yeah it's it's, it's quite okay. an architectural that thing that is quite an architectural Feet. It is. How does she do it? How did you do it? Her. You just got it so perfect. Well, I meant how does she do it? I mean, yeah, it's like there's a duck in the back, and it's an interesting structure. And and you're able to convey hair really, really well. And the way in which you are able to capture President Trump's hair is extraordinary. The belly flop hair is amazing. The hair in the rain is amazing. How much time have you spent perfecting his hair? I mean, there's no not much perfecting. It's served on a platter, you know. If only everyone... Saw looked, the platter your way? Looked like that. I mean, if only everyone... He's so caricaturable. And uh, Sarah Huckabee Saunders, for instance, I haven't drawn her yet, but there are so many great drawings of her just like on Facebook. Everyone draws her. And some people are just, you know, they're screaming to be caricatured. As tough as you've been on the Republicans, one of your most controversial illustrations, as I mentioned in the introduction, was the 2008 cover titled The Politics of Fear. And it featured Barack Obama dressed in Muslim attire, fist bumping Michelle Obama, who was dressed like activist Angela Davis and armed with an AK-47. They stood in the Oval Office with a portrait of Osama bin Laden on the wall and an American flag burning in the fireplace. When it came out, it was labeled tasteless and offensive by Obama's campaign spokesman, Bill Burton. And even Republican Senator John McCain condemned the art. Did you or the editors of The New Yorker anticipate the controversy that exploded around the cover? I mean, I thought it might be like a touchy kind of image that might provoke some outrage. But I didn't expect there'd be so much from, you know, quote unquote, my own side. I guess I should have been a little bit more aware. I think the Internet helped that. I don't know if that would have happened pre-internet, but I was kind of taken aback, that's for sure, especially the first few days after it came out. The New Yorker got thousands of angry emails, nearly all of them from self-proclaimed liberals saying that, of course, they understood the intent of the image, but voters out in the big square states never would. And while talking about the image on CNN, Wolf Blitzer compared that issue of The New Yorker to those of Der Sturmer, a magazine in fascist Germany. Did you get scared at all? Were you worried? Well, I mean, I'm glad that 
David Remnick handled that interview much more ably than I might have been able to. Uh, I mean, I was scared. I was a little, I was a little freaked out. I mean, I told you that when this my book is it, it's it's a little bit more attention than I'm happy with. So the uh, that particular image was it was a frightening couple of days. I was getting threatening emails. And- that was my next question. Given what's been happening now in our culture, when people get angry, they just go out and start killing people. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. I I guess. Yeah. No Do you one... ever worry that if you cross a line or offend someone that that your life could be in danger now? I I don't really know. I mean, I haven't got any any Trump anger, you know, from from right wingers or maybe I'm not doing my job. But the New York Times called the image the most memorable image of the 2008 presidential campaign. And in a wonderful twist of fate, after taking office, President Barack Obama chose a different New Yorker cover to hang in the White House. And that cover is of the president picking the family dog at the same time he was vetting candidates for his national security cabinet. And that's definitely a ha-ha funny picture. Um, He also requested a signed New Yorker cover you created that depicted the president walking on water. Um, right. Is that how you felt about him? I mean, how much of your own affection for or or dislike of a, no, of a politician gets embedded in the work that you do? I think some of it gets embedded. I mean, I'm not a big Hillary Clinton fan, but God knows I was hoping she would win. And I did a cover of her after she after she beat out Bernie Saunders with what we know about that now. It's it uh, it changes the meaning. But I did a drawing of her as a boxer, like a you know, a battle-scarred veteran. And, and the sketch I had done in my in my book was, you know, she was brawny and looked beaten up. And as I did the final, in the few hours I had to do it, I, I noticed I was prettifying her and making her look young and svelte. And it just got away from me. And I guess it was my, you know, my inherent liberal bias or something. But I, I had to try and, and, and beat her up a little bit Afterwards, I did. I did a black eye and some. You scar. put a, a, a bandaid on her nose, which right. I thought was again these little touches that tell you so much more. There's layers of information that you are able to glean from just a bandaid, <laughs> and and the placement of the bandaid, which is right. I was, think what makes your work so genius. It was Cured as opposed to the Bandaid brand, which tells us she's off market. I'm sorry. But is that true? No. Okay. <laughs> I was like, I didn't notice that. I was, uh, but we were talking about. <laughs> I would notice brands. As far as uh, as Obama, as President Obama, I mean, yeah, I, the walking on water image was he was walking on water for three. It was a several panel image, and then the last one, he's falling in. You know, he's human after all, and uh, someone did request that from the White House, uh, and I signed it to him. You know, to President Obama, stay dry, and. Uh, Actually, when when the, when I started to work on the book, my editor, in his wisdom, suggested we write to try and get President Obama to write an, an intro for it. So, I, I wrote him a handwritten note and drew a couple of pictures on it and sent it to him. But we, we still haven't heard from him. So, oh, rats! It's probably not going in the book. Have you heard anything from the Trump administration about any of your work? Your your nope. palmistry, uh, your hand uh, cover with the. Short Bulgarian fingers. I think that he he referenced it obliquely in an interview, you know, saying, "I don't know why they're saying I have small hands. I have normal sized hands." <laughs> Apparently, he sends Graydon Carter, uh, you know, regularly when he appears on a you know photographed on a magazine cover, he'll circle his hand and send a copy to Graydon saying, "See, normal hands." <laughs> 
I love it when we know we get, we're getting to him. Right. So I have two final questions for you. You and your wife, Angie, live in Connecticut, and I believe that you bought a house that Henry Miller once owned. Yeah, that was a typo in the book, actually. It's Arthur Miller. Ah, a typo. Interesting. Right. Yeah, so, I, I ought to have caught that. Um, well, either way, Arthur Miller, did you find any ephemera in the basement or in the attic? or? That's funny. I mean, in the garden shed, uh, we were cleaning it out. And by cleaning it out, I mean she was cleaning it out, not me. Uh, and Angie found a... Uh, it, it, he had carved his initials into the foundation, AM, I think, 57. I was think. it in a heart that said AM and MM or anything uh, like that? No MM. No? And, and there's a little shed in the back that he wrote Death of a Salesman in. And people come and ring our doorbell asking if they could, you know, go take pictures of it. Now you're going to get all kinds of people coming and asking about Henry Miller. Right, exactly. <laughs> um I read an interview with you wherein you were asked if you were stranded on a desert island and only got to have one pad of paper, excluding toilet paper, which would be provided on the island. You had a very interesting answer, and I was wondering if you remember what that answer is. I think, did I say easy wider? Is yes, that what I you said? did, very so blit. Okay. <laughs> Well, That's all know. I wanted to know, what, okay. if, you, if you remembered that that would be the, the paper yeah, I mean, that, that was, you requested. That was a few months ago. I, I remember <laughs> that. But if you ask me, like, what went on in school or what my teachers thought, I can't remember that stuff. What did they think when they realized that you were drawing caricatures of them? Uh, they probably didn't like it. Well, the rest of the world does. Okay. So, Barry Blitt, thank you so much for being on Design Matters, and thank you for making the world, especially our current world, a much more tolerable place for your work. Well, you're very kind. Thank you so much. Nice to be here. Barry Blitt's book is called Blitt. You can also find his work in The New Yorker or on his website, barryblitt.com. This is the 13th year I've been doing Design Matters, and I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon. For more information about Design Matters or to subscribe to our newsletter, go to debbiemillman.com. If you love this podcast, please consider contributing to our new Drip Kickstarter community. Members get early access to the podcast, transcripts of every interview, invitations to live interviews, Q&A sessions with guests, and a brand new annual magazine. You can learn more about this at d.rip slash debbie millman. That's d.rip slash Debbie dash Millman. And if you want others to know about this podcast, please write a review in the iTunes store and link to the podcast on social media. Design Matters is produced by Curtis Fox Productions. The show is published exclusively by designobserver.com. You can subscribe to this free podcast in the iTunes store or wherever you get your podcasts.